Everybody? Man, I bounced up that stage like a 40-year-old guy. <laughs> like 20, yeah. Good morning. How many are happy today to be serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Amen. Oh, hey, listen, we're so delighted, as always, to be here uh, with you all, our dear friends in our home church. And uh, I, I always uh, count it a great honor and a privilege, as I've told you many times in the past, to be with you and to be home. You know, something special about uh, being home and having a chance to kind of break new stuff in, because I I'll, uh, you know, often use you guys as guinea pigs in my laboratory, and, uh, and then I'll take something out on the road, and, and uh, when you hear me preach, normally you kind of get a, a glimpse of what God's saying and doing in my life, and then what I'm about to take out to other churches and, and leaders around the country. And so we uh, always love to be here, and, uh, and I'm always just a little extra nervous to be home because I'm often preaching something brand new, and I will be doing that uh, today as well. How many think we have the absolute best pastors in the world right here? Amen. Lee and Sherry, I love you guys. Honestly, uh, one of the great benefits of coming to First Assembly is the incredible richness of the Word of God that we hear. Uh, perhaps one of the best expositors of the Scripture, one of the most knowledgeable uh, men of God that I know in my life is Lee Brown. And I, I appreciate that. Just the great, the great stuff that we hear. So everything you hear from me, I just got from him and distilled it and reworked it and, and uh, are putting it back to you. Uh, we also have a, a great opportunity today. First of all, I'm always delighted to be with my sweet wife, Cass. Stand and smile at everybody. Will you do that? I want them to see that dress you got on. I really like that. I do. And uh, sitting next to her are some of our dear friends, uh, amazing pastors from Hammond, Louisiana, the pastor of the Harbor Church. And they've been out this week on the lake. Uh, they have uh, a man in their church that has a couple of houses on the lake. And so uh, we see them from occasion, uh, not just in the New Orleans area where they're pastoring just north of New Orleans, but uh, here at the lake. And uh, we haven't seen them this time. Actually, I saw Pastor Marvin last week for just a few minutes, but then Angela flew in, I think, from Idaho or Montana or somewhere out west and came to the real mountains here in Arkansas. Uh, their name is Pastor Marvin and Angela Poole. Would you give them a hand and welcome them to First Assembly today? Delighted to have you guys. I want to wear the hat of a teacher today with the help of the Lord. Um, I have something on my heart that uh, we've been just coming through sabbatical, Kath and I. Uh, and incidentally, let me just before I get into my message today, thank you for your generosity to Dots. It is definitely a worthy ministry. Jordan's back there. Jordan, stand. This is our beautiful daughter. She is an alumni of Dots. And now, stand up, girl. Stand up a minute. Um, she's our oldest, and she's now a corporate officer with Dots and helping to lead that ministry. And we're so proud of her. Uh, Dots is making such an incredible impact in lives uh, all over, and for people all over this area and around the world, uh, really, literally uh, people coming from other directions. And Jordan just helped to write a grant. I'm going to brag just a minute, uh, a, a grant a few weeks ago, and it was approved. And the first disbursement has been released for $500,000 from the state of Arkansas with more to come. Good job, Jordan. Proud of you. She also works two days a week with us. Anything that you see on our social media platforms and the many platforms that we're on uh, she could tell you all of them, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Um, don't be disappointed, but everything that you read that I put out there is not necessarily coming directly from me, but sometimes through her filter. And uh, we have a great production team that, that handles those things. And Jordan works in the communications department at Destiny and does an amazing job. So I'm delighted you're here today, Jordan. She came to hear Papa preach on his 60th birthday weekend. And so I know y'all can't believe I turned 60. Change decades. Come on, somebody. And so I know that's a shock to you. You're, <laughs> so, uh, but that's all right. You'll get over it in a minute. I actually did turn 60 on Friday. I was born, actually, uh, born on Sunday in the middle of a tent revival. My dad was preaching in West Virginia. I am as, as uh, ministry as you can get. Born on a Sunday morning early uh, and the middle of a tent revival. And my dad took my mom that night and dropped her off at the uh, hospital and then went on to preach that night and told her he'd be back after service and so uh, 
I think they had a long altar service that night, and Mom said she kept wondering when my dad was going to get back. He did make it back before I was born, so I'm told. But I don't know that you can get any more ministry than that to be born on Sunday in the middle of a tent revival 60 years ago. And so I'm always uh, conscious of my heritage. Uh, my dad pastored for 50 years, and my granddad 60 before him. And uh, I, I stand on great shoulders, and I'm always aware of that. And uh, grateful for that. So, so I do have something on my heart. I want to talk to you today about something better. Something better. And I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Uh, during this sabbatical, I've been studying the book of Hebrews. And I want to encourage you to take some time this fall and revisit this New Testament book. Often Hebrews gets overlooked uh, between the Gospels and the Pauline epistles. And we Sometimes it gets overlooked because it's a little bit more complex. Uh, the subject matter is very Jewish, and sometimes we can look past it. But I encourage you this fall. And so what I'd like to do is just unlock the book for you a little bit. So if you'll allow me to put the professor's hat on. I spent many years in the classroom. Uh, if you'll allow me to do that and won't hold me to the, uh, the, the restrictions of preaching up a sweat... I'll, uh, I'm going to try, I never know how that's going to go, but I'm going to try to do some teaching this morning to unlock this book, because if you get the lock and the key of this book, it will unfold for you in one of, perhaps one of the most beautiful tapestries of the biblical narrative as it marries the Jewish world to the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, which is uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And so uh, we're going to talk about him. My attempt, my, I'll just cut right to the chase. Uh, my goal today is to exalt Jesus Christ. I have one mission today, and that's to glorify him. So prayerfully as we meander through this reading, and we have a little more verses than I normally would read. I'm going to let you stand up, though, because it's good for you to do that, and that's what's customary in this house. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 1 Something better. Will you say that with me? Something better. All right, let's read uh, chapter number 1, verses 1 through 4. And I want to show you a pattern. I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 1, the first few verses of chapter 2, and the first few verses of chapter 3. So just bear with me for a moment, but uh, I, I think you'll begin to see a pattern. So verse 1 of chapter 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past... To the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. What a big statement. Heir of all things. Through whom also he made the worlds. Uh, this, the word worlds, is not just the material world that we live in, but the ages, time, and space. Time and space and the material world are encompassed in this term in the Greek. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become so much better than the angels... He has now by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All right? Now, if you'll look over uh, to the second chapter, I want to uh, do much the same thing uh, in the first few verses. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. Lest we... Bad things happen when you drift. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by us to us by those who heard him? A few little embedded clues as to who did not write the book of Hebrews. God bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. We get a glimpse in this passage of what the typical first century church was like 
in the Jewish milieu, the Jewish world. It was a world where the gospel was confirmed by signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The first churches were Pentecostal churches. Amen, Brother Brassfield. I didn't write it, I'm just reading what it says. Let's go into chapter number 3 and we'll do the same thing. Incidentally, you could do this in each of the 13 chapters where you get essentially an incredible glimpse of what's about to be taught by reading the first few verses. Chapter 3, let's do it again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory. This one is Jesus. For this one, and I love in my translation, one is capitalized. For this one, being Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he built, who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. A reiteration of what he has said in chapter number 1. And Moses was indeed faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, now before we go on there, and I wasn't going to do this, I'll just pause for a moment. Notice those things which would be spoken afterward. And he, he began the book by saying, God in various times and in various ways in times past spake to us by the prophets. This is what he's talking about. He said, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for which a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. Now he has spoken to us by his son. Somebody say something better. But Christ as a son, Moses as a servant, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Okay, let's pray and you can be seated and you'll say finally. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that's in this room. Thank you, God, for hearts that are ready to receive. God, I pray, Lord, as I've walked many miles. Many miles, Lord, pondering these things in the book of Hebrews. I pray that it would come alive today with the intent of lifting you higher. Thank you for that. In Jesus' great name, amen. High five somebody. Tell them get ready for the word of the Lord. In these difficult days filled with uncertainty, conflict, and confusion, I want to encourage you to choose something better. There are all kinds of choices that you can make on any given day depending on the news channel you watch. There's choices that you make. And I want to encourage you to choose something better this fall. I want to encourage you to trade everything that holds you back, that's captured your attention, and that you hold in your hand for something better. In the words of the author of Hebrews later in chapter 12, verse 1, I encourage you this fall to make it your mission to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Now, y'all know sin will catch you. Anybody ever been caught by sin? You thought it was just a good time and you realized later it was a trap. We've all known the bite of the snare of sin. But the writer also includes the idea of weights, baggages, thoughts, ideas, contemplations, things, baggage, anything that can hold you back. And that it becomes a decision and determination that you are willing to lay aside, that you're willing to trade that for something better. That is the throbbing message of the book of Hebrews, is choosing something better. So no matter what's happening around you, no matter what's happening in Washington, or on Wall Street, or in Hollywood, none of which you can control, I encourage you to get better by setting your sights on something better this fall. Our theme at Destiny since COVID began, actually, and it remains to this day, has been bigger, better, and stronger. 
This last year, we did a regional connect event at Pastor Marvin's church, and that was the theme, Bigger, Better, and Stronger, an entire syllabus of material just designed to help leaders and their teams decide to, move, to get bigger, that, that in the, in, when everything around you says you should be shrinking, getting smaller, getting weaker, and not being as good, we decided that wasn't going to be the posture of Destiny Ministries during the whole COVID experience, that we were actually going to get bigger, we were going to get better, and we were going to get stronger. Better is good. Everybody say better with me. So no matter where you are in life today, you can get better. No matter what you've been through, no matter what your resume of life is, I'm telling you there is something better for you. I wanted, as I kind of began my monologue opening, I wanted to try to drive that home. I hope I'm doing a fair job. Without a commitment to better, without a focus on better, you don't stay the same. I said without a commitment to better, without a focus on better, you don't stay the same. That's not how life works. You can't stand still in life and get better. I think it was one of Einstein's laws that teaches us that. That we tend to decay. We tend to move down. We tend to, if you don't believe that, just put a metal object out in your backyard when we ever get rain. And once you get rain and it sets there a while, rust will set in. And if it stays long enough in the same place, it won't just get rusty. It will decay and lose its original intent and its, its benefit and what it was designed to do. You can't stand still. You'll get worse. You can drift from where you are to where you used to be. If you don't have a fixation on something better. Life will happen to you. And somewhere in the process of life happening to you. You'll look up and realize that you're not standing in the same place that you were. You have gone backwards. And you'll slide down the slippery slope of backwards. The old days we called it being backslidden. How many know it still happens? We don't preach a lot about it. But it still happens. If you're here today under the sound of my voice and your heart is not burning ablaze for Jesus and you've been saved 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, or 5 minutes, it doesn't matter. You can backslide. I'm not, this is not a question of your salvation. I'm telling you, you can move away from God's purpose in your life and away from God's plan of something better for you. Better keeps you moving forward. Better. I purposed in my life years ago that I always wanted to be aspiring to something better. I never wanted to grow content. I never wanted to grow complacent. I never wanted to become satisfied. And, well, this is pretty good. And so this maybe is all God has. Everything I read in the scripture is about God and his people. And he was always moving them forward. Abraham left looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. As you, look at the, as you look at the patriarchs and you look in the Old Testament, you look at the prophets, they're always encouraging Israel and Judah to be better, to move forward, to, to be careful that they don't, as the writer says, drift away. Words that will begin to become illuminated in the book as you study it is the word drift, the word hold fast. And the word moving, or the phrase, or idea moving forward. These are characteristics of the writer of Hebrews. But the focus, the goal, the key to unlocking the book of Hebrews is the word better. You know why? Because to the Jew, they needed to understand that Jesus was better. Anybody in the room believe that Jesus is better? <laughs> How many have experienced him and found him better? Like Daniel and the boys in, in Babylon found ten times. He's not just a little better. He's ten times better than anything that the world had to offer you. So let me just boldly get right to the chase and say that. There's one thing I'm certain of, and I have the real world experience to back it up in the education to understand it, that Jesus is better. He's better than anything you're longing for. He's better than anything you're hoping for or the desires of your heart, the unspoken desires of your heart. Gee, you may find them. You may look for the proverbial pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but if you find it, I'll guarantee you this, Jesus is better than that pot of gold that you found at the end of the rainbow. He's better than the best things this world can offer. He's better. Can I get an amen? I'm talking about Jesus, y'all. He's better. 
I remember what it was like to be lost. I remember what it was like to sit in a church pew and have no faith abiding in my heart. But then when the Prince of Life entered my heart, I got better. <laughs> I got better. Oh, man, I've been through all the things you can imagine in life. I, I've gone through some of the darkest, most difficult moments. And I can tell you that when I got to the end, I found a friend that was closer than a brother. And he was better. I found he's better than silver and gold and houses and lands. He, he's better than your favorite sports car. Or your favorite food. Would that we would just praise God like we do a good pizza. Or that little secret hideaway Mexican place that you found. And we'll go on and on and on about the enchiladas. And <laughs> but can I tell you, Jesus is better than your favorite food. Let me tell you, some of the best cooks in the entire world are sitting right there. Some of the best Cajun food you will ever eat in your life is right there. And I love it, Margaret. It was great. But when I found Jesus, there's nothing you fed me that can compare with what Jesus has done in my life. Am I getting through to anybody this morning? Man, I've walked that loop. I've walked miles and miles just singing in my heart. He's so much better. Lord, you are more beautiful than silver. You're more precious than gold. You're more beautiful than diamond. Nothing I desire compares to you. Yeah. He's better than a week on the beach along the Emerald Coast. He's better than the most beautiful mountain peaks of the Rockies. When I was a kid, they used to sing a song. I learned it well because they sang it a bunch. In a Pentecostal church, how many know you get stuck on repeat a lot? <laughs> Those songs come up in my heart. And I love all the contemporary stuff. I'm, I'm a Hillsong guy. I'm a, I'm a, all you name it, Bethel, all that stuff. I love it and listen to it. But it seems like when things get challenging, these old songs come up in my heart. Take this whole world. But give me Jesus. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. Remember that old song? Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. Some of y'all never heard that in your life. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. See, when you've been through some stuff, and you've been through some high days and good moments, and some bad days and bad moments, those, signs, those kinds of songs begin to mean a lot to you. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I won't turn back. I won't turn back. My goodness. <laughs> Take this whole world. I want to sing it again. Can I sing it one more time? But give me Jesus. See, when you begin to fix your eyes on him, when you begin to focus on him and how much better he is, you can begin to say, take this whole world, but give me Jesus. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. You can throw a little country in, but I won't turn back. Mm. No, I won't turn. <laughs> Merciful Lord. On the other side of the coin, he's better than the worry that fills your heart and mind. <laughs> he's better than those dark fears that keep you awake at night. He's better than the biggest anxieties and deepest anxieties that you struggle with. You can trade that, ladies and gentlemen, for something's better. You can trade the, the ideas, the labels of the past and the things you've made, the mistakes you've made and the, the labels of shame and all that you've worn. You can trade that for something better. He's better than a bad attitude. I need a better amen than that. And next time you get up in the morning and you just get up on the wrong side of the bed, just get back in bed and roll over to the right side of the bed and get up with Jesus. And he'll, he's better than a bad attitude. He's better than carrying unforgiveness in your heart. He's better than holding a grudge against someone who hurts you. Are y'all in the room with me this morning? I'm talking about Jesus. I'm saying none of that compares to Jesus. Because somebody's done you worse than you've done Jesus, you need to forgive them. Look at your neighbor and say, get over it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Trade it, or better, just trade it. Let's trade it for something better. Today, this fall, make up your mind not to settle for something good. Press on to something better. Now, okay, so that's my opening monologue, introduction. How many believe I could just, we could just open the altars and we'd... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That sounds like a wishful amen, brother. <laughs> I ain't, but I ain't through yet. <laughs> yes, thank you. I left my handkerchief at home. Thank you. I might need the whole box for it. <laughs> I told you I wanted to encourage you to study the book of Hebrews this fall, so let's break it open just a little bit. Now we'll shift gears. So you know what the message is about. I've let the cat out of the bag. I've essentially preached my message. Now let's go to the classroom and open your scripture there and hold it close. Uh, When was the book of Hebrews written? Because it's important if you understand a few details about the book of Hebrews. It will help to now, you know the key is better. That unlocks all the text. But you need to put it in context a little bit so that you understand why it was written. And let's talk about when it was written, who wrote it, and then why it was written very quickly. Are you okay? doesn't mean it's be long. It'll just take a few minutes, but I'll break it open for you. Probably written somewhere in the range of 65 to 69 A.D. How do we know that? Because in chapter 7 through 10, the conversation about the Levitical priesthood, Aaron, and the various uh, operations and ministries of the temple is made in the present tense in the Greek. The, the writer does use past tense Greek in various places where he's talking about something in the past that's happened. But in that entire passage where he's talking about the work of the priest and the various sacrifices, he speaks of it in the present tense. Well, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. We know that uh, during, during the, uh, the, the siege of Titus and, and a few days later <coughs> in that process, uh, the temple was destroyed. So we get this sealing, so to speak. Plus, we know that Clement uh, of, of uh, Rome, who was a writer, a, a church father, wrote about 95 to 98, right at the end of the first century, when John is probably writing and publishing Revelation, Clement wrote a letter and quoted uh, uh, several passages from the book of Hebrews. So we know that it was written in the first century, probably in that general time frame of 65 to 69. Uh, It was written before major martyrdoms had become the trend in Rome. Hebrews 12 and 4, some of these verses you can read later, mentions that you have experienced some persecution, but you have not resisted unto blood yet. So it tells us that major uh, martyrdom has not happened, and uh, that gives us a relatively brief window of something like 65 to 69. Now, who wrote it? If you have an old King James version of the Bible, it might very well say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. It's unlikely that Paul wrote it because of what I mentioned earlier to you in the second chapter where the writer says, we heard first the the Lord spoke and then we heard it from those who saw him or heard it from him and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Paul never claimed that type of relationship with God. He always claimed a firsthand resurrected encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Very unlikely that he would have even suggested that he heard the gospel from men. Incidentally, part of his card, uh, card carrying card credentials was that he did not get his gospel from men, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So it does kind of take Paul out potentially as the specific writer. And through history, the church fathers have tried to speculate who wrote it because the content is very much Pauline. The ideas that are extrapolated are very much something you would expect to hear Paul write. The thing is, though, Paul wrote in a different type of Greek often, or those scribes that worked with him wrote in Conan Greek, which was what I would call redneck Greek. Uh, It was the language of the street. Hebrews is the only book of the Bible, or particularly the New Testament, that is written in a near classical Greek style. That's a big deal. It was the language of the academy, the language of the university. So it's very unlikely that Paul would have written it. And some have said, well, it was Barnabas. Barnabas could have written it. He was from Cyprus. He would have had the Greek understanding, the background. He was also a Levite. Makes sense. Until also... 
again, it's reiterated that this writer has not had firsthand experience with the resurrected Lord. We know that Barnabas was part of the larger group of disciples of Jesus. From the baptism of Jesus by John, Barnabas was there and part of that. And it was, it was almost him that became the twelfth apostle. So that now leaves Barnabas out. So was it Titus? Perhaps Titus. Uh, I would propose that it might have been Apollos. Apollos. Apollos, according to the book of Acts, was a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt, a major seaport there. Also, when the, the passages of the Old Testament are quoted in the book of Hebrews, they are quoted in a Greek form from the Septuagint, which happened to be collected and put together in the city of Alexandria. So he's literally from the city where the Septuagint was published. He is from there. He is a Jew. He would have had understanding of the temple and its services. He was a, a mighty, a, 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 I'm thinking the word, the academic word to use. He was a, a mighty speaker in the style of, of Greek rhetoric. In other words, he was very capable. The book of Acts says he was mighty in the scriptures and eloquent in speech. And so it could have been him. If it were Apollos, now don't leave here and say, well, okay, we know who wrote the book of Hebrews, because I will join with Origen, uh, one of the, the second century church fathers, when he said that only God knows for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. So that's my disclaimer. But if it were Apollos, then we can get a sense of, I mean, he uses nautical terms. Drift away was not just a word about, well, don't drift. It was a specific term that was used when boats in Alexandria were released from their moorings and they could drift out, on, out of the harbor, the safe harbor, into a dangerous place and be crushed on the rocks. He talks about Jesus being an anchor for the soul that is anchored behind the veil and the Holy of Holies. He uses on at least four or five occasions very technical seafaring terms. So the circumstantial evidence would suggest it. Here's the thing, though, that I think helps to unlock it because when you're saying, well, was it Paul or was it one of his protégés? There's a phrase in the book where it mentions the fact that uh, the ex this is an, an, a strong exhortation that phrase is almost always used of a sermon that was preached in ancient Jewish synagogues. An exhortation. The writer says, I'm sending you this exhortation. And that word was a colloquialism for being used in the synagogues for a sermon. Most likely, as you begin to study the book of Hebrews this fall, my suggestion to you is that it is a sermon that the apostle Paul preached frequently to Jewish believers and it was saved perhaps by Apollos or someone in his company who had the credentials and the skills to write it. So just for, the, for that few moments of history, you can thank me later. <laughs> but, but anyway, for that few moments of history, it's perhaps that this, when we read the book of Hebrews, we're reading an anointed word, a message from the Apostle Paul that he frequently preached in synagogues and with Jewish believers who were being pressured to go back to the synagogue. And so let me move quickly as to why it was written. This is the real key to understanding the book. Why? While believers were not being martyred in large numbers, persecution had begun. Homes were being looted and possessions confiscated. Very similar to we, what we would have seen in history with the Nazis and the Jews of the Holocaust area. Long before the concentration camps developed and, and those incredible torture camps at Auschwitz and others, the, the homes and the businesses of Jewish people were being looted and destroyed. They were being robbed from. Their possessions were being taken. We see from a reference in Hebrews that this is happening in the Christian Jewish community, perhaps of Rome, where this letter is maybe intended to arrive. And the writer says that you are having, you're standing strong. He said, though you have not died, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with those who are suffering at the hands of persecution. What's the occasion of writing the letter? Well, here's what's happening. The Jewish religion was legal in Rome. A lot of times we don't understand that. The Jewish religion, they had made a deal. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem had made a deal with the Caesar, with emperors. And the, the Jewish religion was legal. Uh, I think the Latin phrase they used was religio licitas. In other words, it was, there was a collusion between the Jewish Judaism and Rome to kind of make happy and play nice with each other. 
and you could be a Jew and have some legal protection. But the Christian sect of Judaism had already received the decree of Rome being religio illicitas. In other words, it was illegal to be a Christian, but you could be a Jew and it be legal. So the pressure had begun to be exerted on the audience of this book to leave the Christian side of Judaism and go back where it was safe. Listen, if you keep talking about Jesus and you keep preaching about Jesus, you're going to get us all in trouble. It wasn't just the religion of their fathers that they were so concerned about. It was that it became illegal and consequently opened the entire community to persecution from Rome. So great pressure was being exerted on the Jewish believers in Messiah to go back and renounce Jesus and go back to the synagogue. And that's where he begins to use these words about drifting and making sure you hold fast to the truth and not being willing to be driven away. Christianity was in the crosshairs of the Roman religion. But Judaism was still legal. It was simple. If you just denounced Jesus and went back to the synagogue, they would accept you. And if you were going to claim a relationship with the Messiah, you certainly had to be circumcised first and go through the Jewish track or you would bring the wrath of Rome down upon us all. How many understand that that can create incredible pressure? Anybody in the room? So you've got the Jewish community saying you don't have to lose your home and your business. What are you thinking? Believe what you want to believe. Just come back. Come back and you go through this little ritual and we'll accept you back and you'll be safe. It's okay. We have a deal. Now we can point a finger at those Jewish believers that were under that kind of pressure. But how many know the temptation? Can I tell you a lot of Christians are making a bigger deal with Rome than just the first century Jews? I tell you a lot of believers are selling out Jesus for less than just a house or a few dollars. I need a better amen than that. No, the letter of Hebrews speaks to all of us. It just doesn't speak to them. But if we understand what's going on with them, then we can understand what's going on with us. All, all across this country, there's a pressure to conform to the, to the, to the spirit of the age. Make happy with Sodom. Make a deal with Rome. Become a, a patriarch or a, become a, a patron of Babylon. But I hear the writer of Hebrews saying, no, no, wait. No matter what you can save by doing that, Jesus is so much better. You found so much more in him than you'll ever find in the safety of a deal in a deal with a world that's bound for hell. That don't sound like teaching. That sounds like preaching, but... I can't help it, y'all. Let me remind you of the passage that I read as I prepared to turn down the, the, the turn of this message. Let me remind you of the prologue of the letter, perhaps one of the most beautiful Christological passages in all the New Testament. When the author speaks, he's preparing them for what he's about to break open over the next 13 chapters. He says, let me start by just telling you about Jesus. Let me just start. Let me just break right out of the gate by telling you. I know with the Jews, angels were a big deal, but he's better than angels. He says, I'll just take you back to that passage. He says he is the heir of all things. You understand what a big statement that is? So he's writing to Jewish minds that are on the bubble, who have believed in the Messiah, but are under incredible pressure to go back to what they used to be. For safety, and it's the same God, right? It's the same God. What will it hurt? It'll save your family, save your children. You want your kids to go to college? You want to have a future? You want to get ahead in the world? You don't want to do it by stirring up trouble with Rome. Don't, don't listen. Don't do that. Just come on back and believe what you want to believe secretly and privately. But just come on back. And oh, well, you might have to renounce him as Messiah. But come on back because you can believe whatever you want to believe in your heart. And it'll be all right. You understand when the writer starts it this way, it is like a right across the face of that kind of ideology. I always heard when you get in a fight, draw the first blow and go right straight for the nose. Any fighters in the room that would say, that's what you do if you can, just don't, just don't do all this at lunch times, just pow. Won't normally end the fight. That's what the writer of Hebrews does. 
He says, let me just tell you about Jesus in case you don't know it. He is the heir of all things. God has appointed him heir of all things. The heir becomes the chief executive officer of the entire estate of the father. When an heir is appointed, that heir now is in total control. In other words, if the father was the father of Judaism, when he appointed Jesus heir of all things, Jesus became the proprietor of not only the new covenant, but the old covenant. You won't go back. He's tamed him. You can't go back to that old way of living and find peace and happiness anymore. Once you've tasted and seen, as a matter of fact, he gives that caution in the book. He says, for those who go back and have tasted, there remains no more sacrifice for that sin. He's the heir of all things. This is in his role as the son of man. This is not in his role as the divine being, as part of God, as the son. No, this the son or Christ. This is in his role as the son of man, the one that Daniel talked about. He was always God, had always been God. But then there came a time, Pastor Brown, where he was appointed the heir of all things. That's in his role as the perfect son. Are y'all in the room with me? That means something to a Jewish mind, that just Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Then he said he's the creator of the worlds. He's the creator of the ages. This all-inclusive term of time, space, and matter. Probably as close as the writer of Hebrews will get to a scientific injection into his passage is in this passage where he gives Jesus the credit as the creator of not just the terra firma that we walk on, the material earth, but he is also the creator of time and space. He says he is the brightness of his glory. The phrase used in the Greek here means the radiance of light's essence. We've had plenty of occasions the last couple of months to step outside on a hot day. You don't just see the light, you feel it. How many felt the light? And if you stay, if you go out to the beach and you take your shirt off or you you put your bathing suit on and sit in the sun without sunscreen for about a half hour, we'll all see the glow of the light on you. What the writer of scripture is saying is that Jesus is the part of God that you can feel and see. The scripture tells us that God is a spirit. And even Jesus alludes to that. At that moment at the woman with the well in Samaria. God is a spirit. John tells us that no one has seen God at any time. But yet we see what part of God? We see the radiance. Like the rays coming from the sun... And you see that ray, you can see it. And if you get in that ray, you can feel it. Jesus Christ, the writer says, is the radiance of life's essence. He is what you can see and feel about God. Are y'all in the room with me? Who would trade that for a lamb sacrifice or a bullock? or a, Who would trade that for mountains of, pour, of gallons of blood? And Who would trade the radiance of the light? <laughs> who would trade that? Right out of the, back, the, out of the gate, the first four verses... He said he's the heir of all things, the creator of all the ages in the world, the brightness of the glory, the radiance of light's essence. And it gets further. He says he's the image of his person. This word is only used once in the New Testament. It's used here in the Greek. Only once. And it means the exact representation. The exact representation. Wow, what a mouthful. You think he's getting the... He went straight for the juggler, didn't he, in the first few verses. You Jews who are thinking about going back, you said you accepted the Messiah. Let me tell you what you'd be trading down for. First, by telling you what you have in him. And he's so much better. Thirteen times the writer uses the word better in the book of Hebrews. He's upholding all. This this made me want to shout when I jotted down. The next one is he's upholding all things. The Greek phrase here for that means supporting the purpose and supervising the process. Let that sink in on you for a moment. How many are glad today that in your relationship with Jesus you can trust that there is somebody beyond the realm of what you can see that is supporting the purpose and supervising the process? Oh, bless his name. There have been so many moments in my life I said, God, where are you at? What are you doing? 
Anybody in the room had that experience? The writer of Hebrews tells these people that are beginning to feel the fiery hand of persecution, don't be afraid. He's supporting the purpose in your life and supervising the process. And then that grand climactic moment in the first, what we call the prologue of the book of Hebrews, he said he is the lone redeemer. What bulls and goats, pigeons and doves could not do. He did once and for all. We're not waiting for a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice has already come. (laughs) He's not waiting for you to act better. He's already forgiven your sins and washed them away with his blood. This is not contingent on you. Your life will be largely lived based on what you do. But your salvation is based through grace on what he did. And the writer is very specific to say he then sat down. There was no place, as he would break open the, the, the various temple tabernacle vestments later in the book, there's no place for the priest to ever sit down because the ideal was that the work of priests was the priest was never done. But he said, this priest, this sacrifice, this heir, <laughs> this creator, this one who is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his light and power, This one, when he finished making sacrifice for sin once and for all, sat down. Therefore, as we break the balance of the book open, he says, he is better than the angel's message. In that the sender of the message is more powerful than the word sent. The angels, the Jews believe that the angels brought the word to Moses, they were the deliverers of the message of God. And the writer, when he does this incredible opening in the prologue, then says, by the way, let me just tell you, you elevate angels way up there, but to which of the angels did he ever call them his son? To which of the angels did he ever exalt? As a matter of fact, he says prophetically that the angels will worship him. He's better than the angels' message. Then he goes on to Moses, the sacred Moses. He said he's better than Moses' law in that Moses was a servant and this man was the son. He's better than Joshua's rest. He's better than the promised land, you understand, to the Jew. That's a big deal. He's better than the land of promise. He's better than Joshua's rest. He's better than Aaron's ministry. His priest is even from a different order outside the Levitical order. The order of the prince of Salem, the king of Mel, the king Melchizedek, who was this shadowy figure that Abraham, the patriarch of all the Jewish people, and all of us today by faith, the patriarch paid tithe. In ancient times, it was, it was the custom for the inferior to pay tribute to the superior. He said, even your father Abraham acknowledged the fact that there would be a priesthood that would supersede the priesthood that was in his loins. He's better than Aaron's ministry. He's better than the tabernacle service. He's better than the sanctuary's purpose. In light of all these truths, what does he tell us that we should do? With his highest excited level of appeal, he says, stop the drift. Stand with me, would you? I hear him saying it to them, but I hear him saying it to us. Stop the drift. Don't go back. Hold fast to the truth. Get a hold of the truth and hold on. No matter what Christianity from a governmental view becomes in America, Lay hold of what you believe and don't turn loose. Don't turn loose. Don't let the cares of life cause you to drift away. He says move forward toward the finish line. 
as he goes through all of this teaching, he comes then to chapter 11 where he says, I want to encourage you. Some of you are suffering. But he said, let me explain to you how people of faith have always made it. And that beautiful roll call of the faith is opened up to us. He follows the order chronologically, beginning with Abel and moves through the patriarchs and, and then ultimately gets to present day. And he said, they all by faith. Some didn't get the joy of the promise. But by faith they endured because their eyes were on something better. They were captivated by something better. And then he comes to that grand climactic of the book in chapter 12 where he says, Therefore, seeing that we are encompassed by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. And run with endurance or with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I brought a little illustration over for you today. Here's a $20 bill. It's paper, right? Everybody say it's a promise. Right? I mean, that's essentially, it's a promissory note. I may even have that on it someplace. It's a promissory note. It's, it's not worth anything. Can I get an amen? How many believe it's worth less of late? Right? It's a promise. It only spins and works because everybody's kind of bought into the promise that it has value. But you understand when they left the gold standard, it has no intrinsic value. I brought a solid sterling silver coin today. This has intrinsic value. Paul, I shouldn't say I'm sorry. The writer is saying to us, you're standing in the promise when God has given you. Why in the world, he said, would you trade that that has intrinsic value? For that, that's just simply a promise. The promise is beautiful. The Jewish faith, it was bathed in beautiful imagery. But it was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. It was not, what, how does a shadow work? A shadow works these lights. If, if you look down, you could see the shadow I'm casting. That shadow's not really me. It's just when it hits, when that beam of light hits substance, it creates a shadow. And the whole Judaic system was a shadow of things that was to come. Paul said, you've received the real thing now, baby. You've received the real thing. Why would you trade the real thing for the shadow? It'd be like trading silver and gold for a promise by a failing government. I need a better amen than that. And my question to you today is why would you trade the substance of Christ for anything this world has to offer? During his speech after being awarded the Templeton Prize on Progress in Religion in 1983, it's like the uh, Nobel Prize for Religion, essentially. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who had received, incidentally, the Nobel Prize as well about a decade before, who chronicled uh, in, in landmark works the oppression of communism and the effects of Marxism, a thing that he began an advocate for, but because he watched it firsthand became a, a detriment to him. Beginning in atheism, eventually became a believer. At his acceptance speech, he gave this incredible speech. He said, 50 years I've been working on our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes to the subject myself of clearing away the rubble and the upheaval called by, caused by the, a revolution that took some 60 million lives. And he said, if I was forced to bring it all to one phrase, I would say it this way. Men have forgotten God, and this is why this has happened. Amen. 
When we forget God, we replace the worship of God with the worship of self. Just one more second. When we're preoccupied with self, the transactional space of our struggle becomes our identity. It's the final phases before destruction. Identity becomes our focus because we worship ourselves, because we've turned our back on God. You begin to hear things like identity politics and confused sexuality and gender identities and suicide rates go up. Hopelessness and despair become the order of the day. Humans become pawns in conflicts of culture and class. And we think ourselves collectively as opposed to individual responsibility. This is what happens when a nation or a people turn their back on God. These developments, ladies and gentlemen, are the final gurgling gasp of a culture destined for destruction. And there's where we are today. It's not coming. It's here. So what are we to do? Stop the drift. Hold fast to the truth. Move forward to the finish line. Trade the promise for its fulfillment. Trade the shadow for the substance. Make a good trade today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? All over this room, I came to challenge you today because I've been challenged. I came to challenge you today to make a good trade. To trade all that stuff I've preached about for the last 45 minutes for something better. I spent the first 15, 20 minutes of my message just expounding to you how much better Jesus is than anything that you have or this world can offer. There are some under the sound of my voice that may not know the Lord. You may have never even heard of this kind of message I've preached is totally foreign to you. But then there are those under the sound of my voice that you're like the Jews of that first century. You're a believer, but you know that you've been dabbling with compromise. You know that you've been dabbling to find ways to escape the pressure, quietly dismissing your responsibility to share the good news with people who might not know because of what they might think of you. And I'm challenging you to join me this fall in saying, Lord, I'm going to open up the book of Hebrews and I'm going to taste just how much better you are. And I'm going to make it my job this year, Lord, to say I'm not drifting another inch. In fact, I'm moving forward. I'm going to trade all this junk for something better. If that's you and you're in this room, I want you just to step out from where you stand and come right quick and we're going to pray together. If you want to join us this fall in saying we're going for something better, come on right now, very quickly. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. Trading it all. All in. Like Mark Batterson said in his book, All In, that sometimes to go all in, you have to go all out. That's always been the call of Christianity. Not to hold back, but to go all in. We're all in. This fall, we're going to be delving deeper, Kath and I, into the mysteries and the the beauty of the book of Hebrews. Today, I wanted to give you the key to unlock it so you would understand it when you're reading about the priesthood and about Melchizedek and if you're reading about Moses and Joshua. You'll understand that as you read what they valued, the writer was saying Jesus is so much more and so much better. And today, I'm telling you, Whatever you need. You, I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. Whatever that trade needs to be today, I'm asking you to make that right decision and trade it for something better. And as you do, the beauty of His majesty, who is the heir of all things, the brightness of His glory, the splendor of His majesty, will begin to break and dawn in your life. As the picture becomes in focus. Amen. Just slip your right hand up. All of you around this that have come up, just slip your right hand. We're going to pray together. Father, pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, today I choose you. I repent for every weight and the sin that can so easily ensnare me. And I look to this cloud of witnesses. But beyond the cloud of witnesses... 
I look to the author and the finisher of my faith. And I will run with race, the race with patience and commitment and focus until you have finished the work in me that you desire to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Will you do that? Amen. God bless you.